Hello, I'm Lucy Mercer. And I'm Livia Franchini. Welcome to the Too Little Too Hard podcast, where we talk to writers about the intersections of work, time and value in relation to their creative practice and literature as a whole. Welcome everyone to the Too Little Too Hard podcast. We're delighted to have Amber Hussain and Sophie Corsa as guests to talk about their amazing essays featured in the publication, as well as wider thoughts related to how writing intersects with questions of work, time and value. Amber Hussain is the author of Meet Love, published by Discourse in 2023, and Replace Me, published by Peninsula Press in 2021. She's currently completing a PhD and working on a new non-fiction project. Sophie Corsa is a writer and researcher. She's currently working on two book projects, an academic monograph exploring representations of women reading in contemporary women's writing, and a collection of essays about connective reading, grief, and queerness. Her first book, The Reader's Joyce, Ulysses, Authorship, and the Authority of the Reader, was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2022. Amber and Sophie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Amber, I wonder if we can talk about your satirical story, A Disingenuous Prescription, that appears in the first issue of the magazine. The narrator is a personified illness narrative who recounts its meeting with an extremely cynical editor who diagnoses it as an illness narrative and outlines strategies for it to exploit its material, the illness of its author. The editor suggests this process will restore agency to the writer and that the illness narrative would be healing, entertaining and instructive all at once, a cash machine with tinctures and a conscience. As well as addressing the pressures of the literary market on writers who engage with this subject from the standpoint of their own experience, the essay explores ideas of control and value and wonders instead how illness narratives might function differently. Could you talk a little about this satirical narrative, why you wrote it and how maybe it connects with the rest of your work? Yeah, thanks, Lucy. And thank you so much to you and Livia for including me. It's such a great project. I've already binged three of the articles that came out this morning. But yeah, so this piece, it's quite unlike anything I've ever written. I normally write essays, either book length or normal length. Whereas this is more kind of a story trying to kind of break open the form of the illness narrative itself. In terms of themes, I guess it kind of connects with my academic research into the politics and recent history of healthcare, but it also relates to my own experience of illness and questions concerning how and whether to write about it. Because the practice of writing, it seems to me, seems to have been sort of attracted into the sphere of health and illness, whether as a sort of therapeutic practice for the writer who's ill or a healing offering to readers who might be ill. And the trouble with that is that the economy of storytelling is plagued by some of the same issues as what I would call the economy of health. So to talk about health, I suppose, our understanding of health and illness is very constrained by the sort of economic imperative to get well now because it's very expensive to be ill. So we just need to fix ourselves, right? And then we don't have time to consider the sort of psychosocial or even spiritual or ecological factors that are involved in producing illness. It seems that we're in this kind of double bind where you can either sort of play the game and do whatever the doctor or the self-help guru or whatever it is says and make yourself as well as possible by whatever means, even if those means are quite violent, or you can just suffer alone. And it felt to me almost comically similar to some of the ways in which, you know, our lives as writers are plagued by certain constraints where you either play the game I sort of swapped in an editor for a doctor. There's this kind of play with that. You can either kind of play the game, don't do what the editors want. I'm not blaming the editors, you know, they're just kind of like standing in for the the demands of a much bigger publishing economy. But you can either sort of do that thing and 
I guess you could call it selling out, or you can write whatever you want, but for absolutely no one, which then screws you over as a writer because <laughs> you're not getting paid for it. So basically, yeah, this piece came out of trying to grapple with the fact that writers don't seem to have time or resources to write in ways that are curious and exploratory in the same way as people who are ill don't have time to kind of or resources to sit with their illnesses and work out what they might be trying to tell them about themselves or the world. Yeah, and the, the sort of marketable convention is just to reify illness as this object of fascination in and of itself, rather than maybe something fascinating for other reasons. There's so much in here in terms of the richness of its topics and like you're saying the complexity as a writer choosing between a kind of this sense of selling out but then again possibly having no audience this question of time pressuring both Mm. you know writers and this link with illness where like you say it's like managing your symptoms and the time to understand that illness and 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 sit with that illness I think this kind of feeds into and I wanted to maybe read a bit the very beginning of your essay it says I was first diagnosed as an illness narrative in August 2022 by an editor I met with privately after waiting to be seen for 15 months in a general submissions inbox he declared that I an illness narrative as textbook as he's ever seen was unlikely to have many pages unless that body through an ideal balance of disgusting and erotically compelling wasn't attended to at once. I wanted to ask you, I think the essay does explore this, what you think a kind of illness narrative might be described as and maybe what a textbook illness narrative might be and also maybe what or which things do you think a commercial illness narrative exploits and why? I I wrote the piece in that kind of somewhat experimental way i.e. from the perspective of an illness narrative, partly in order to explore or take seriously the idea that illness might have a story of its own to tell beyond what we tend to try and wring out of it or what we're obliged to wring out of it or incentivized to, whether that's from the perspective of self-help healing or whether it's from the perspective of selling a story. I refer explicitly in the piece to an influential, I don't know if I call it seminal, but definitely an influential text in the kind of literature on illness narratives called The Wounded Storyteller, which codifies four different sort of illness narrative that one might find and propose one of them as the sort of ideal. Basically, they have to do with narratives that either play out a person trying to sort of discipline themselves in order to overcome or work through illness or aspire to some kind of ideal image of health or, you know, play out certain frustrations and sort of, yeah, reactions to the illness. And then finally, the suggestion is ideally communicate something about their illness. And I I think what all of these things seem to have in common is that they do tend to treat the illness as the end point of inquiry in itself like the illness is ultimately the point and in as much as we quote unquote should aspire to communicate about that it's sort of limited to the idea of just communicating you know oh this is what happened to me maybe something similar happened to you you know maybe that's comforting maybe that's interesting entertaining whatever it is and, and, you know, that's kind of all to the good, but I suppose what is absent is any idea of communication from the perspective of, for example, consciousness raising, locating illness within a wider social or political environment, and what that might require from a narrative perspective is going a bit deeper beneath the illness itself, the kind of description of symptoms, the dramatization of suffering, you know, to think about how that suffering maybe relates to the circumstances of a person's life, right? I feel like that is often absent from the way that we imagine an illness narrative or a saleable illness narrative. So yeah, that's where the piece is starting from, not providing an incredibly worked through vision (laughs) of what the alternative would be. But I do think that I ask some, some useful questions, hopefully. I think definitely. And you say at the end, 
you know, rather than being the point of my narrative agenda, illness might become the language through which I might say something else. And like you say, we might not have gone into what that something else might be, but we can't know the possibilities of that yet. And I think resituating the illness narrative in this way does show us that actually, like you say, illness can be another way of exploring things outwardly that aren't just being relegated to symptoms and this sense of optimizing an individual Mm, right yeah yeah exactly I mean it's kind of part of the point isn't it that we I have not yet had the time or space or wherewithal to really explore either illness or the illness narrative beyond this sort of critique but you know I've inspired myself too so (laughs) that's all to the good Sophia, I just wanted to introduce your article briefly before we jump in and talk about it a little bit more. So your piece, The Reading Kind, addresses the porous concept of reading as labour, with particular regard to how it establishes itself as a central perception in the lives of those who read as part of their job, and yet how diminished this space and time that one is able to dedicate to reading is becoming, even when somebody is employed indeed in one such profession. But your piece is about so much more too, and it looks at reading as connective and effective experience of the text, which can be shared and perhaps viewed as a collective endeavour. In doing so, you get us to journey through the minds of so many brilliant readers, writers, mulling over the reading experience from Ali Smith to David Graeber, Nicole Schicken to to Rita Felsky. And I would expect that some of the questions you explore in The Reading Kind possibly stem from your more long-term research on reading your first book, The Reader's Choice, Ulysses' authorship and the authority of the reader and your current project, which is exploring representations of women reading in contemporary women's writing. And I just guess I'd love to hear more about the genesis of this particular piece, how it's different, how it's similar to some of the work you've done before and how it connects. Thank you. And I want to second Amber's thanks for inviting me to take part in this. And it's a real pleasure to be part of the first issue. I think this is such an important but also like a fun publication this is such an engaging way of dealing with these kinds of questions yeah honored to be part of it and yeah when I try and think about the genesis of this work the most straightforward answer would be that it it does come from the two years of research that I'm coming towards the end of now where I've been researching representations of women reading and that I've been thinking about that both in terms of the text that I've been looking at, but also my own writing, the sort of academic writing that I do and what I want to achieve with that. But I have also thought and really did think when I started working on this piece in particular, that the question of reading and work specifically came from the shift that I went through from working on Joyce to working on contemporary women. And like, I don't want to talk about this for too long, but like as a kind of brief context that I spent several years pretty much just working on James Joyce, being very involved in the field and writing an incredibly Joycey book, which was essentially about how readers think of the author when they're reading. So it was very much about Joyce, but sort of broader relevance about how readers construct their own authority when they're reading. And from about halfway through that work, I started fantasizing about doing something quite different, which was to work on the stuff that I actually read for pleasure, to use a very loaded phrase, and started imagining this other project where I would work on reading in the context of contemporary women's writing and queer writing instead. And I was able to shift my attention to that by, you know, the normal process of applying for lots of stuff and waiting until something stuck and various general failures along the way that go with it. And almost as soon as I began this two-year project, I realised, I had this sort of moment of realisation of what have I done? I've turned the reading that I used to get all of my rest from into the focus of my work. And what does that mean? And, you know, got sort of horribly self-reflexive about it. But put it to one side really is kind of my own problem that existed outside of everything I was doing academically. And that stopped working at all. It clearly became part of it. It became part of how I was thinking about the whole point of academic criticism 
what it is that I want to actually communicate about reading. And then I realized that it wasn't such a huge break from the work that I'd been doing before, that I'd actually been writing about the functions of literary criticism for a long time. And this was sort of allowing myself to be doing that at less of a remove to sort of acknowledge how personal some of that has always been for me. I mean, I believe that actually all literary criticism is incredibly personal and there are just ways in which people mask that and deny that. I think what's going on in literary criticism is much more about taste, for example, than most people will let on. And I've been trying to sort of allow that to come into my own work a little bit more. So the piece that I've written for you, as Liv has explained, is about trying to figure out how to think about the relationship between reading and work. And when I look at it, it seems so worrying to me. It's a real, like, good worry on the page that brings together a lot of what I've been thinking about in the context of a sense of running out of time, really, of coming towards the end of having the kind of perfect reading and writing situation and knowing that there's going to be quite a significant shift now in how I fit that sort of work of reading and of writing into into life now. Thank you, and it's really, really fascinating and actually a perfect lead into my next question to hear you talk about reading this work and reading this pleasure in regards to your own sort of biography and publishing history, because that was going to be my next question. And I, like Lucy, would like to read a little section. And my question or kind of reflection is this. So I thought that a central dynamic in your essay is that whenever the question of work is raised in relation to reading, it swiftly returns us to what may be conceived of as its opposite, such as reading for pleasure or reading for love. And we kind of approach this idea of love gradually, which I really like. And at one point you land on beloved theory, which I reread this morning (laughs) and and thought was a really good way to sum it up. You write, if we treat professional, i.e. critical reading as work, then we place immense pressure on what divides reading as leisure from reading as labour. A commonly offered difference, one is for fun and one is for money, crumbles so easily and obviously if we've ever liked, liked our work or done it without pay. And yet the strength of reading's representation as a subversive pleasure is evident everywhere, begging for attention. And a little bit of what you just said about your own work too. There's something about the act of reading that can seem to be slotted neatly into mechanisms of supply and extraction that isn't so easy to quantify and streamline for better profit. And it seems striking to me that this unruly, indeterminate quality of the reading experience has been picked up on by some others of our contributors to the first issue as they interrogate themselves on the writing experience, pointing at a meeting of author and reader in a text, which relies on a happy measure of uncertainty and thrives in the unquantifiable nature of an exchange that is non-transactional, at least not in economic terms. Um, It seems to me that this meeting is dependent on both parts, the reader and the writer, having some degree of agency, which is something you discussed in your first book as well in relation to Joyce. And I was thinking about something that I heard Mike John Harrison talk about in an interview, and I wonder, you might have even been there, so maybe you remember it too. I'm trying to quote as correctly as I can. When he said that contemporary mainstream fiction, with its emphasis on conventionally linear plots, demands that a character goes through life-changing and exciting circumstances, but does not allow the same privilege to the reader, who can figure out a story and how it's going to unfold through neat causal links without undertaking anything of the same life-changing experience on an emotional level. So I suppose I was thinking about all these things, reading as listening, reading as a willingness to sit with uncertainty and reading as a way of kind of handing oneself over emotionally to a textual experience. I guess I just wonder if you want to expand on these concepts or maybe the role of vulnerability or generosity in textual engagements. It's a really, really broad question for you to expand if you would like. Thank you. They're very lovely thoughts. Sort of responding to, I guess, what you were saying about reading as not fitting into kind of structures of product and something that I wasn't so conscious of when I was putting the essay together but I've been thinking about a bit more since is something that's come out of my research as well so I've been looking at literary representations of reading but also in non-fiction so this is partly where criticism comes in but also I've been looking at things like biblio memoirs histories of people's reading lives and 
my main interest when I'm looking at how others have represented reading in writing is that I'm looking for some sort of experiment in form where like a often quiet formal innovation is somehow communicating the effect of reading, the kind of impact that reading can have. But in doing that, what I really want to parcel out is that that effect or impact is a product, which is generally writing or another cultural product, that there's a way of representing the in-between stage. And what I've been discovering is that the majority of contemporary writing that I've looked at about reading is therefore also about writing. It's reading on the way to, it's always reading before, it's reading in the endeavour of, it's like part of a journey. So maybe this picks up on what you're saying about the sort of linear movement. It's something that's happened that you then move past. There's a writer who I referenced in the essay called Christina Lupton, who writes some of the best stuff on reading. She's written a wonderful essay about Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts and how reading is represented in that as having taken place in the past that she did all her reading in graduate school and now that informs her writing life later and it's this incredibly linear non-queer time outside of the time structure of the actual narrative but reading happens and then writing happens and I'm interested in trying to write about and I'm interested in reading about reading that happens sort of for its own sake and I have wondered about how that can fit into the other discussions going on in this issue because in a way it, it feels a little bit like a cop-out like well I'm not talking about products so I'm not dealing with sort of the industry I'm like almost trying to close myself off from that which isn't really what I'm trying to do but it's trying to figure out how to express everything that can happen while you're reading in terms of holding on to uncertainty or feeling the most extreme clarity the amount that you can feel while you're reading the ways in which you can hold sort of opposing truths at the same time just like that kind of real power that you can experience while reading and the struggle is that putting that into writing so easily falls into cliche or feels to me sort of disingenuous it's something I really struggle with finding effective descriptions of it as you point out I kind of start to talk about it as work and then I keep veering into the other things that it is as well I guess it's trying to hop between things to find some sort of way of communicating the muddle of it if that makes sense and also a way of thinking through some of the people whose work I've been reading a lot of like you know I keep referencing Rita Felsky in this and everything else I've produced over the last couple of years I love reading her I don't agree with her most of the time but this felt like quite a good way to also engage with academic thinkers in a different way from how I'm used to I'm not sure if that's a an answer to your nice questions but some more no, absolutely. And I don't think that not talking about a product in the context of thinking about a reading is a cop out at all. In fact, I think that, you know, all the pieces that contributors have given to this issue kind of try and get around the idea that we should even consider products yeah. <laughs> as so central <laughs> to the textual experience more broadly, I think. So from my perspective, it's actually liberating to hear from readers that that is not what they care about the most so you know so only gratitude for that <laughs> Lucy over to you I think yeah oh, oh I was just going to say as well I think the thing about reading as work is so important because you know it's often treated as a kind of goodwill commodity it's actually a huge amount of work that people who you know write work in academia do that just isn't recognized as work it's great to have that kind of brought to the kind of forefront when we were thinking about this. So we were going to go on to, we asked you both to bring in a text that's relevant to these themes that the magazine discusses and perhaps relevant to your essays. And I'm just wondering if you guys have got a text that you'd like to share. Amber? Yeah, I fortuitously picked out a quote from... Christine Smallwood's fantastic novel, The Life of the Mind. I say fortuitously because I feel like it really lands on uh, a lot of the stuff that Sophie's been talking about, but hopefully might open up a couple of other questions as well. This book was published in 2021 and it kind of follows an adjunct worker called Dorothy, 
and is really about sort of the hell of intellectual labour in the present. So I don't think this quote needs much set up, so I'm just going to read it. Dorothy used to love email, used to have long, meaningful, occasionally thrilling email correspondences that involved the testing of ideas and the exchange of videos and music links. Email had been the way that she and the people she knew or was getting to know had crafted personas, narrated events, made sense of their lives. That way of life, alas, had ended. Long emails had ceased being the preferred mode of storytelling among her peers, or perhaps they no longer had so much to say to one another, and emails, though sealed with perfunctory hugs and kisses, had become businesslike. Sending a thoughtful email that she had drafted over several days and edited would, she knew, be a form of aggression. It would be foisting unpaid labour, a homework assignment on a friend. So yeah, I suppose it kind of gets to that thing of recognising that reading takes time and it's time, you know, that blurs with work time or time that could be spent on leisure time or, you know, like other other kinds of leisure time. Yeah, I think it brings up both reading and writing. And then also this third element, which is communication as kind of sitting at this strange place between work and play and again brings up this question not to be taken seriously I think this suggestion that it was actually unpaid labor that should be paid but it does beg the question you know when all of life is work when should we get paid and for what I loved that I loved that so much the work of constructing the perfect email Mm. and the the joy but the work from it that's so fun and I'm now quite excited to share the the quote that I have as well because it goes quite well but um, in a different context. Something that occurs to me is this movement towards work encompassing all when we could be thinking about pleasure encompassing all Mm -hmm. and how in order to protect what we enjoy that exists in relation to literature we end up sort of drawing this really artificial boundaries between what we enjoy and what we consider work. I wonder what it would take to think about drawing encouraging boundaries as opposed to protective boundaries around our free time. That's so interesting because I was thinking when the question of communication came up like Sophie's piece really it's kind of devastating in the way that it shows that the kind of agonies that we go through in trying to litigate you know how we should manage our own pleasure around stuff to do with work and it's like what role might work have or writing or reading have in you know somehow and particularly when it's communicating with other people in kind of mobilizing to to change the situation so that it doesn't have to be our burden to work out what to do with our pleasure. How is work involved in transforming conditions so that it's not that all of life is work and that we have to, you know, rest back some leisure time? Yeah, and you're, the, the piece that you've read and then Livia, what you said afterwards as well, it's, I'm thinking now about in terms of communicating and connecting with others and all of the other kinds of work that we do outside of reading and writing and teaching and the other sort of activities that we do, even of I'm thinking about academic events now, and maybe this is just mm. because I've been like at a series of them this summer, but even like to <laughs> some more sort of context on my current job is the first time that I've had access to leave, to having annual leave that I'm able to book off. And when I first went to... A conference on this fellowship I wondered if I should book it as leave like if it didn't count as work to be at an academic conference <laughs> which is total nonsense and obviously I figured out that was wrong but even at I was at a summer school last month and it was it's one of the nicest ways in which to be traveling for work it was in Italy it was beautifully sunny I only had to work mornings I gave one lecture I was listening to others But all of these kind of conversations that you have with people after the lectures or before the seminars or at the dinners, they can be, for some of us, so exhausting. And thinking about how to file that kind of connection and communication where, on the one hand, you can make fantastic friends. On the other hand, you are working. Like, it it is still within a kind of work context. And then feeling like you're being, I don't know, I feel like I'm being ridiculous when I'm exhausted by 
that sort of thing. Like, how can I be exhausted by what's essentially a, a trip abroad? Trying to sort of file those things as work or rest is incredibly difficult, I find. Mm. It makes me wonder about the role of sort of hidden convention you touched upon this, Sophie, and maybe later we can talk about how we contextualise what you both have been talking about within working in academia <laughs> yeah this role of hidden convention are we speaking according to sort of are we in work related mode what does that entail is it exhausting because it entails a certain type of performance which is the same type of performance that practice requires from writing academically but also from the kind of very structured conventional narrative arcs that are placed on experiences such as the one you're describing amber in your piece that can be summed up proficiently <laughs> according to a kind of arc or trajectory I'm just thinking here as well about the way that you have to write professional emails I also find exhausting as like that narrative and I wonder if maybe it's a bit of an aside but how you both as writers do you find that you have to go into a different writing mode like what's the mental state that's needed to be in that space and then be in this other kind of writing space I'm just thinking about I suppose the kind of practicalities or how we navigate because it is it's just like impossible isn't it to turn your email off or whatever so hmm. I don't know how I would describe the kind of state that I need to be in to write an effective email that does not come naturally to me. Or, you know, I'm thinking about answering questions at a conference. And some of the context for me, I guess, is the kind of the sense of the eternal, ever-present job market as well. That, you know, if I write a terrible email, what will that mean? And, you know, the sort of sense that everything can be being judged in a way that really could impact <laughs> your financial life is hard to get away from sometimes. It's not like it's always present in my mind and my feelings about academic employment are pretty ambiguous, ambivalent. But I think that there's some of that, and I imagine that's the same for writers outside of academia, more commercial, or even with independent presses, you are making connections that potentially will have an impact on your financial life so the pressure that comes with any of those acts of writing is therefore informed by that I'd say. Yeah I find that's probably the thing that makes it the most exhausting or the thing where you can tell that you're experiencing something as work is where it really feels so tethered to your kind of material sort of subsistence I guess. I find that yeah very find that very exhausting. It's funny in terms of how it plays out in emails. Like, I hadn't thought about it that much, but I guess I'm thinking now of pitch emails and how painful those are to write. I suppose my default experience of emails just comes from my first jobs were not academic or writing. I worked in publishing and at a kind of very low level, there is a certain language that editorial assistants used to use and it was not a real language that anyone uses in any other context and you just kind of get used to doing that by default and it's only later that I've become kind of self-conscious of emails as actually being interpreted as my own voice <laughs> which is you know what what from you know being in academia where people do do a bit more of that you know like act normal and I don't know no I don't know I, as soon as I said that I was like <laughs> but like you sort of yeah it's not corporate speak, even if it is its own gobbledygook sometimes. Less so, less so in emails. Definitely, there's, as you say, in writing, it's maybe more literalised, that idea that you're pitching yourself. But, you know, I suppose it is the same in academia where you're always having to hustle for jobs. Like, there are so few permanent, stable jobs. I wondered, Sophie, you said that you wanted to share your quote and perhaps relate yeah. to what we've been talking about. So maybe it's a good time to bring that in. So again, I also, like Amber, actually, I chose this before I read Amber's piece and then was very pleased because it's from a study of parody and it's towards the end of the study where the author, who's called Laurel Tucker, she's writing about parodies of work, parodies of academic work particularly. 
So her book was published a couple of years ago. It's called Unexpected Pleasures, Parody, Queerness and Genre in 20th Century British Fiction. And like I said, I thought it would be relevant to the four of us speaking because we're all in some way working in or around higher education. But I think the central idea is a bit more relevant to the other contributors and maybe to the issue more broadly, but see what you think. So yeah, she's talking about parodies of academic work and academic life and looking particularly at kind of how easy it is to accuse those kinds of parodies of being self-indulgent, like academics writing about academics and whether being an academic writing about academics, writing about academics is even more self-involved. And she's trying to instead look at like the value of, of that kind of parody and where it comes from. And just to flag this up in the part that I'm going to read, she uses the word crip, which just in case any listeners aren't familiar, it's used by people working in disability studies as a kind of reclamation but because it's in the process still, some would say, of being reclaimed, I thought I'd just flag it as that's what that word is doing here. So she writes, the forms of knowledge we study and produce are increasingly trivialized by and alienated from the institutions of higher education that sponsor them. Academics, particularly workers in queer, black, crip, and other dissident critical modes are writing and teaching in epistemologies directly opposed to the structures used to assess our labour and our students' labour. In the morning, we sit with our students and help them identify the ideological work performed by literary texts, or we teach them alternatives and styles of resistance to the white supremacist heteropatriarchy. Black pessimism, queer negativity, cruel optimism, Afrofabulation, feminist killjoys. In the afternoon, we churn out our assessment reports, our diversity statements, and our letters of recommendation that translate student success into predictions of productivity, sociability, resilience, and disruption, you know, the useful, profitable kind of disruption. We can't be serious about both of these positions. So she's I don't think she's accusing anyone of anything here. I think it's a confession of the kinds of compromises that we make, the way that we sort of do the work that we care about within structures or institutions that potentially contradict some of that work. And the reason I wanted to share it was because I think that sense of compromise, I found like really engaging and powerful in your essay, Amber, the sort of the published or not published, like how to navigate the illness narrative being told as a story within that sort of industry. And just like off the top of my head, Yara Rodriguez Fowler's essay on getting the first book deal kind of springs to mind as well. So it's maybe think about that sense of having to make compromise, but also maybe the sense of being compromised in some way, mm. like how firm do we feel the ground is that we stand on when we're making these critiques and how difficult that can make it sometimes that we're also aware of what we do have and nervous about complaining about what we don't have and we've all had to navigate either the commercial publishing industry or the academic world and how does that um, unsettle us when we try and then write about these things or talk about them together. But I'd be interested to know what any of you think about kind of the idea of compromise, I guess, or just reflecting on the things that we work in different disciplines. Amber, I know your PhD is in art history and mm. Liv and Lucy teaching creative writing and visual cultures and how that kind of sense of a contradiction between the things that you teach and the ways in which you have to work, how that strikes you. It's such a kind of ambiguous term compromise in a sense because on, on on the one hand it implies a lot of individual responsibility for you know how we navigate the situations that we work in how we navigate the fact that our labor takes place within a capitalist economy and and it's very easy to kind of disavow that and just be like oh well it's it's fine you know we shouldn't feel bad about having to compromise certain values just to kind of get by in the world 
but then there's also that thing with there's the question of what kinds of people are we training ourselves to be in the extent to which we compromise and like other ways of training desire in other directions that might politicize us better to transform things with other people but in terms of the quote that you just read it's kind of painful to hear reiterated that sort of forced cognitive dissonance that is kind of foisted on everyone and I think that's been my experience both in publishing and in academia and otherwise um but you know I really don't think people can be blamed for it (laughs) Um, no no me neither I suppose, you know, working in the humanities in academia at the moment also means that you're at one of the very prime sites of battling, but also resistance to this notion that, you know, you can assign a value that is discernible to the humanities more broadly. We're thinking around literature here specifically, but yeah, you were talking about cognitive dissonance, Amber, and I guess that's what we experience in that decoupling of the meat of the subject that we're teaching in the classroom and our pedagogy or, or methodology and then what the job requires more broadly you touch upon that with the graver quote so in your essay and I suppose right now in a really crucial way because it's not so infrequent to actually hear discourse around devaluing of humanities in the news you know these are things that now are said openly and that this kind of devaluing discourse affects public perception but again feeds into that economical sort of strictly financial aspect of things because of course it affects student numbers it affects institutions financial streams maybe it's worth bringing in at this point something I was thinking about in preparation to the podcast was the fact that not only both of you are academics but both of you are interested in this creative critical nexus and we've discussed the conventions of mainstream publishing you know, down to the way we phrase an email, all the way up to the way that we think about saleable narratives and marketizable narrative structure. And we've talked about it in the same way within the context of academia. And Amber, your piece, I would consider a piece of creative critical writing. And Sophia, mm-hmm. I know you're really interested in creative critical writing as a scholar. And I would say that your piece too, perhaps, is a creative critical piece <laughs> in some ways. But yeah, I wonder if that interest in probing a form of writing that tries to sort of push back on the conventions of either genre is a way to perhaps engage formally with that resistance and kind of engage with that cognitive dissonance, you know, by, by bringing together both fronts, by kind of letting things be a bit more porous. So I just wanted to sort of throw this in the mix, is that, you know, is formal experimentation of a certain kind, is the merging of different uh, streams of writing with potential way that we get out of these strictures. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and nice point it, or question. Like, to what extent can we sort of imaginatively inspire people to think about it a different way, maybe, from that kind of being locked into the capitalist realism of the situation? You know, it doesn't solve the problem, but perhaps to start to almost, you know, seduce people into imagining something else, maybe. I don't know. Like, I used to think that also that question of complicity or compromise was just about ultimately how much you could stomach. Because if we accept that there's forces much greater than ourselves at play here, it's really just about how much can you handle. And I I don't think that that's actually the case I think that there are degrees to which it is actually materially important what we do because of its politicizing potential and its galvanizing potential yeah for me that feels like potentially what you just said Livia about formal experimentation does seem to be kind of important there trying to pick up on the idea of value in terms of being interested in creative critical writing. I do think of that more in terms of like, I'm interested in it as a researcher, would like to get there as a writer, but feel like I have more work to do. But again, this is where I start realizing I've actually been thinking about the same thing for years and years and years, just in different modes. What is the worth or value or significance of like an act of literary criticism? How do we create worth or value or significance? 
And I've been thinking about that previously. I don't want to talk about Joyce too much, but I have been working on that in terms of Joyce because dealing with texts that are so kind of aggressively open and insistently open, even kind of constructing authority to determine like a temporary meaning of something takes quite a bit of doing. But I've been thinking in terms of specifically if we write about a piece of a literary text, work of art, piece of criticism, whatever artistic form, if we write about an aspect of that because that aspect is significant or if that aspect becomes significant because we write about it. And I've started thinking more in terms of like less significance and more, like I said, worth and value. I kind of get stuck on this question of how people perceive the worth and value of quite straightforward academic criticism or more personally inflected academic criticism or these hybrid forms that we're talking about and how are we kind of making people think about that by playing with different forms. And I get, I kind of touched on this a bit earlier, I do get frustrated when people complain about not being able to use I in academic writing because I don't know what they're reading. <laughs> like there's, there's some great stuff that's so personal, but without it being personal writing, it's just an acknowledgement that academic criticism is written by individuals. But I am interested in that perception of therefore criticism being of less worth somehow, if it's not so openly personal and trying to play with that a little bit and making connections between having been academically interested in how to express and hold on to uncertainty and like a vulnerability in your arguments like acknowledging that you're just suggesting something and it will be disagreed with and that's how this all works to then also trying to acknowledge vulnerability as the person who's writing it which is part of where the opportunity of writing this essay was such a gift to me because it felt like I was given space to be a bit more or a lot more vulnerable than I have been in other forms of writing and what I enjoy when I'm looking at creative critical writing is that kind of play and exploration what I hate is the part of my brain that thinks about still and in the in the essay I sort of highlight this a little bit that I still think about the academic context in the UK and Ireland of how different kinds of work are read and how they're categorized and how they're judged and I hate that part of my brain that that still does that but it's there. Just listening to you speak I was thinking about blurring the line between reading for work and writing for work and writing for pleasure and thinking about Tim within a discipline that constitutes the main bulk of a work right I find that, for instance, because I'm trained in writing prose in a way that I'm not when I write poetry, poetry becomes the escape. And more recently, I hesitate to say this, but maybe academic writing is becoming an escape because it placed me in a position of being an amateur. So somebody that loves the form, but is tinkering away with it. And that generates vulnerability. And and that vulnerability should be the natural space of writing and reading, it feels we've been discussing. But increasingly, the more you professionalize your writing and your reading, we seek an escape into a more immediate, effective experience, I suppose. I think also we are just, as academics, working in an environment constantly that tells us what we do is not of value. You know, like academic writing, ironically, is not seen as of value by universities. Um, and I think this question of creative critical writing and forms maybe even the question of how do we read in some ways our responses to this because we're kind of saying like what is the value what is the right way to do things like what's the right way to see the world I think there's a big ethical dimension to it that maybe gets bypassed when we talk about you know like creative critical or different types of reading and things like that because they sound like they're abstracted from ethics or morality but increasingly I kind of see these different modes of interpretation as fundamentally ethical questions maybe so it's not just what style are you writing on you know maybe. No I I absolutely agree and was just thinking about 
what would shift in our minds or like let's be more specific what would shift in my reading if so I've read Amber's fantastic piece and absolutely loved it what if I decided to write about it I'm then engaging in an ethics of what am I doing to that piece now am I reducing it or am I opening it up is it like taking away or adding I think that there's often a perception that if you shift to an academic reading you're sort of losing something and I don't necessarily agree with that but then I'm also very I understand where it comes from I guess and as I'm talking to three creative writers having spent so much time sort of at like a a real remove from from that and I'm interested to know how you guys feel about the idea of being written about critically not like a review but being analysed like that, your work. Sophie, I'd love it. I'm just like (laughs) void for praise. You know, there will never be enough, frankly. I don't know if many, yeah, like, um, sorry, that's kind of a bit of a silly answer, but I think that there is something about, and maybe that, that void does come with all the social media trappings and pageantry that we kind of get associated with as writers now where we're kind of constantly we're kind of chewed into this need for constant attention so on a very shallow level that's my feeling about it but I feel like your question was actually a bit deeper but I do feel conditioned now well as a writer in that way I was thinking about something that is when an, is is in one of the essays that are in this first issue, Anthony Laxagora's piece, where he talks about demanding that the reader replies meaning to it. I mean, I can think of nothing better. Often, you know, whenever my fiction work has been reviewed, and I mean the good reviews, not the kind of mm. <laughs> yeah, the the one star reviews and good reads of which I have many. But I mean the reviews that not good in terms of like praise, but good in terms of spending time <laughs> with the article <laughs> that I spent a lot of time making. And to me, like the best ones kind of tell me things I don't know. They feel like a making of the text that happens through the act of reading, and that's the biggest credit that anyone can kind of hope for really that somebody takes it and and I'm quoting another we've been spending a lot of time on this issue so I'm quoting another one of a contributor is this is in Will Harris's uh, piece on narrative and collective building of narratives you know you can make it your own you you, you are making it your own in a way by seeing things in it that you know that sometimes I, I don't even know I've put in there or maybe I haven't even put in there you're putting them in there and that's awesome (laughs) I'm just wondering how this question, actually, Sophie, relates to the idea of, say, reading illness narratives. And if on one hand, as writers, we're happy to get attention, as it were, what does it mean when, and I think in relation to your piece, Amber, Mm. we kind of put a, a part of ourselves or a personal experience or a traumatic experience into that writing, and it is engaged with, critically we've put ourselves in that position where we've published that narrative but actually when it comes to it we might feel very differently and there's questions of exploitation and control going on in your essay Amber Mm. I thought I'd just kind of bring that question into this yeah I think it feels like there's a difference somehow in terms of how critical writing as a kind of nexus of reading critical reading and then you know producing something new might or might not risk exploiting existing material but I think that all of what you guys have said is really beautiful about that kind of being the dream of having something new made out of something but criticism being a, a, a place of creating something new through adding the readerly perspective I think in the case specifically of illness narratives and the personal element of it. There is an important distinction to be made between the author and the narrator, I suppose, like the persona, the construction of the eye that is being deployed, like in writing something for the purposes of communication or consciousness raising or whatever it is. You're not necessarily just selling yourself. You are constructing something from yourself in order to do something else. And what people do with that is, to some extent, up to them. I think 
The question of exploitation, I think, remains live, but the ethical question is different from how somebody might treat an ill person in the world, as it were. Right, and that obvious distinction as well between an apparently personal text, a textual self or a textual voice, and then actual self, body, and Mm. so on. And I think that that comes back with the university the extract you read, Sophie, on one hand, engaging reading and writing about subjects, and then on the other, maybe in practical terms, not kind of completely aligning with values or ideas or whatever, because it might be impossible to live and live out in lived experience and that tension between those two things, which kind of can never be resolved. But certainly, I think, generates so much in its discomfort, perhaps. Yeah, for some of us. I'm sure that it doesn't for (laughs) other (laughs) academics. Depends on what people work on and what their politics are. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, but also there is the case that people write things that they might not kind of, well, on one hand, in a good way, you know, like in creative practice, we're writing about things that aren't directly related, but, you know, political academics, for want of a better word, might not necessarily practice what they preach on a practical level which then really makes it much more difficult to think about really something I keep going back to is this notion of agency on the part of the reader and the kind of demands to parcel the illness experience seem to kind of match with Mm. an expectation that a reader that perhaps has experienced illness is only able to receive an inspirational an, an inspirational narrative. Mm. That that assumption only really rests on a product being saleable in a really straightforward way, yeah. not necessarily on any expectation of the reader. And likewise, thinking about education, you know, the parceling of knowledge with the expectation that students will absorb it in an acritical way when actually the agency is equally distributed into any of the participants <laughs> so a literary act seems like a really important thing to me yeah just a thought it seems very demeaning to me that anyone would expect knowledge to be handed over in easily digestible chunks <laughs> and I feel that if you asked anyone on the receiving end of knowledge whether that's how they like to be treated I find it quite disrespectful actually in the same way as we do <laughs> as as writers because it entails a removal of agency and kind of someone else knowing how you best consume right. knowledge. I'm wondering if we should move on to our final question of the podcast. We were going to ask you both what are some things that you think might improve your working conditions as writers or that you would change struggled with this because so many of my answers become absolutely huge Mm. it's like oh you know secure income housing so different governments so electoral reform fine that would you know they become issues that pertain to anyone trying to live a manageable life and then when I try and move away from those huge ideas I become incredibly introspective and obviously I understand why I do that sort of feeling of a lack of control and then think well maybe if I could just make my brain work better then things would be improved but I've also tried to think about it less as a writer and more as a reader I don't know if that's at all useful for this um but maybe thinking in terms of space to do reading work but this relates to writing as well I'm in London at the moment and I always feel lucky to have the British Library to go and work in. I shouldn't feel lucky. Hundreds of libraries have closed in the UK in the last 10 years. You know, it shouldn't be a privilege to have somewhere to go and sit and think for free. And I think if that were a condition that we could expect rather than be grateful for, that would be, I don't even want to say that would be wonderful. That would just be, you know, good enough. (laughs) Yeah, I had really similar issue in that it's kind of like, well, what here is specific to writing? And then also, what do we want now? What's the, you know, possible now? How much of that is, again, to come back to this idea, just a compromise on a much bigger, you know, transformation of working conditions in general? I'd love to have a salary or failing that, like at least sort of the expectation that writers' fees should reflect in some way the amount of time spent on them, you know, blah, blah, blah. You could go on forever. 
but then on a longer term scale or maybe on what you would think of as call a more utopian horizon you know it would be great if our fortunes as writers or just as any kind of laborers could be disarticulated from the market altogether i think writing is not unique in that sense but what it does do or what the publishing industry as such a kind of like comically unequal industry for both publishers but also writers shows up just how extremely unfair things can get when the market is the thing that governs how people are being compensated for their work you know it's obviously utterly insane that some people are paid three figures to write a very labor-intensive book and other people are being paid seven. It, it kind of shows something up, but the solutions to that problem are not unique to writing or publishing. brought it up a couple of times, but Yara Rodriguez-Fowler's essay in the first issue has some good suggestions <laughs> there. <laughs> suggestions within the kind of political horizon that we live in at the moment, for sure, to do with unionising and so on. Mm. I did also have a little think about, I guess, why I felt a bit uncomfortable with it, not just for the reasons that Amber and I both said about sort of the hugeness of solutions, but also that I guess I'm more familiar with a really different publishing context, which is academic publishing, where you're never going to make money from a book and you don't expect to. Not that that's a good thing, but it comes from an old system in which you were being paid elsewhere for that work in your academic job. And now more and more people are not paid for that work and are essentially creating books for almost free in the vast majority of cases. But I don't want to complain about not making money from my academic book because I understand the situation of the fantastic small university press that I published with. I understand what's going on in that system and what's wrong with it and it's not the fault of the smaller university presses at all but I do find it interesting that there's a I mean we've been talking about creative critical work which um, I think we all see as incredibly valuable and exciting but there are of course also academics who move into more commercial non-fiction work Mm -hmm. and some of them do that to try and be paid for their writing you know with a a very legitimate aim of if I'm going to spend a year writing something then maybe a little advance would be a good thing yeah and it it puts a lot of pressure on the stuff that you get used to as an academic writer yeah we've been very grateful for these conversations and everyone's kind of generosity into going into the specifics I feel there's a movement which is like an outwards movement which is as soon as we consider our working conditions as writers within a system that is greatly unequal it brings us to bigger societal questions and that's one thing that we hoped to encourage to sort of probe that connection but also all the little hidden structures all the little hidden behavioral codes that mean one is successful or not (laughs) and they're different types of publishing and that has been I think a learning curve for Lucy and I to sort of understand how much there is going on in these practices of writing that feels like an applied pressure that comes somewhere from a place and needing to earn a living but articulates itself in quite minute ways that even if you've been working in the industry as I think we all have been (laughs) for like a decade (laughs) or more (laughs) are not immediately discernible and so we're hoping that conversations like this one can help us sort of move towards the micro and open up towards the macro too so thank you so much thank you so much we're so grateful for your time and generosity in approaching these subjects and you know in terms of work time and value you know even the publication of podcast is a, is a lot of work so Thank you so much. Thank you. It is such a fabulous project. I'm really pleased to be part of it. I agree. It's it's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Too Little Too Hard podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. We are grateful to our funders, the Royal Society of Literature and the Department of English at the University of Exeter. Visit our website, tlth.co.uk to read the full articles. Bye for now.